Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning to you all and a Merry Christmas. It's a joy to be worshiping the Lord together on this, on this Lord's Day. Our Old Testament reading is from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7, a familiar text. Looking forward to the birth of Christ, Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And our New Testament text, Matthew chapter 1, 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray and ask him to bless it to us now. Gracious God, thank you for your word, which is such a clear word and such a precious word, such a life-giving word. We pray that the light of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ would shine now in our hearts to give us the life that is found in Him alone. We pray these things for His sake. Amen. Who is your king? Americans don't officially have kings, right? Um, we just saw the, all the news over in England a few months back with the, the queen passing away, and, the, and then there's this new king. And it, it seems kind of foreign to us. We don't, we don't understand that aspect of, of, the, of life there because we don't, we don't have a king. But all of us, functionally, do have a king, don't we? I mean, someone rules your heart. Uh, someone rules your home. Uh, someone is sovereign in your world. Um, there is someone in your life that you have complete allegiance to. Um, someone that you are completely submitted to. Someone whose every wish 
is as your command. Isn't there? Someone, someone that you are so loyal to? If we're being honest with ourselves, we're, we're probably starting to feel a little uncomfortable as we think about these questions, right? Who am I completely, 100%, always, without fail, submitted to and devoted to? Well, myself, right? We, are, we want to be the kings of our own hearts, right? But there's a king that, whose cause we're, 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 always, we're ceaselessly championing. And often it's the king of our own hearts. We try to put ourselves on that throne and uh, we have unquestioned devotion to ourselves. Um, there's that poem, right, that says, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And unfortunately, we kind of like that line sometimes. We want to be sovereign ourselves. But that's just stupidity, isn't it? Um, because which of us is actually in charge of ourselves? Which of us actually has, has, has power uh, to, to, to do things the way we want to do them? When we are living as though our own hearts are in, are in charge, uh, submitted to our, ourselves, putting ourselves on the throne of our hearts, then we're just slaves. Slaves to our sinful, perverted, and rebellious desires. Uh, slaves to uh, slaves to the kingdom of darkness and the power of Satan, and slaves to to, to death and and the miseries of this life and all that goes along along with it. Um, so we, we think we're in charge. We think we're in control. We think we can be king of our own heart, but we are 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 in ourselves in that slaves to sin and under the shadows of death. But there is a king. There is a king. Praise God. Uh, who can free us from that? Free us from that slavery to self and sin and the shadow of death. A king who can, who can break all those chains. Free us. Bring us into a kingdom of freedom and life and peace and joy and, and the glorious light of the good news of the gospel. This Christmas season, we've been looking at Christ, our Redeemer. We've been looking at him and he, he has these three offices that he fulfills, doesn't he? he has, he's, he's the prophet who declares God to us, reveals God to us in all his glory. Uh, he's the priest who makes uh, the payment for our sins, then intercedes for us. And now, finally, this morning, I want to look at how he is our king. He is our perfect king. This text in Isaiah shows us there is no king like him. And it, it challenges us to, to, to throw off our own idolatry of, our, of ourselves as king and worship Christ alone as king. Trust him alone as king because he alone is worthy of it. Three things I'd like to look at together this morning as we work through these two verses in Isaiah, verse 6 and verse 7. Um, the first thing is this, the king's birth. This, this king we're talking about, we, we see, first of all, in the first half of verse 6, his birth here. Um, verse 6 opens with a birth announcement. This child is born. Uh, we're told the government's on his shoulder. So it's telling us the child that is born, the son born, is going to be a king. Um, th- th- this is a big deal. Uh, the, the chapter here, in the, the context of the chapter, Isaiah is prophesying about the exile of Israel. Uh, the covenant people of God have been unfaithful to him over and over and over for generation after generation. And um, judgment, judgment is going to come. God's going to put up with this rebellion no longer. He's going to send judgment on them. And it starts at the very north of Israel. The tribes at the tip top of Israel are they going to be the first in the path of the invading nations, bringing, uh, bringing God's judgment on them. And Isaiah turns his attention 
in the context of, a, of this chapter 8 and, and the chapter 8 and the chapter 9, he turns his attention on these northern tribes who are the most vulnerable right in the path of the invading Assyrians, uh, the ones who are living under the, 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 the threat and the shadow of exile and death and curse, uh, living like they are on death row, so to speak. Isaiah turns to them. He says, you're, you're right in the path of the oncoming storm. But something is going to happen. That, that, that transforms all of that. Uh, uh, there, there's darkness, yes, but light is going to come. It's going to pierce that darkness, drive away that darkness. There's, there's a war on the horizon, but, but I'm promising you peace is going to come. There's sorrow on the horizon, but I'm promising you joy is going to come. De- death is overshadowing you, but I'm promising you life is going to come. And, and not, just a, not just a short recess of life and then back to the salt mines, back to death. But no, real, lasting, forever peace, joy, and life that he's promising. And Isaiah is so sure about this, as he speaks the word of God, that he puts it in the past tense. Hasn't happened yet, but he speaks about it as though it's a past historical fact. He says, um, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. He says, uh, the rod of his oppressor you have broken. Well, well, no, Isaiah, we, that hasn't happened yet. He's, he's saying, you know, this, uh, the promise of God is as certain as history. The future that God has promised his people is as certain as the past. It's just as sure. He's saying this is most certainly going to come to pass. And, and all this that I'm promising you uh, by the word of God, he says, is um, it all comes down to this person, this son who's born, this king. When this king comes, this glorious new life-filled future is going to, is going to dawn on you. And uh, the, the, the Lord pulls back the veil here in the prophecy a little bit, and he gives Isaiah this vision of, of what's going to come. And, and it's all centered on this son who's going to be born, this son, this child. Birth, children, sons, those are, those are important things in, in Scripture. Um, as we're reading this text here, Isaiah, Isaiah 9, verse 6, when we see this language about a son being born, and the government's going to be on his shoulders, our minds should, should think back to the covenant God made with King David, promising him a son. Second Samuel 7, the Lord promises David, one of your sons is going to sit on your throne. Uh, you're going to have a dynasty that goes on forever. Um, his son Solomon in some way fulfills that. He takes the kingdom to a greater heights even than David his father. He rules, he builds the temple and he rules over a, a reign of peace and plenty, prosperity and, and blessing. Um, but then he stumbles and then his successors after him stumble. There, there, there are a few, um, a few good kings in there, but for the most part, it's a downward trend, downward spiral as the, the kings of Israel get worse and worse and lead the people further and further away from God. But, but God's promise stands he made that promise to David, and his promise is as certain as history, and his promise stands, a son, a king, an heir, will come, better than all those failed kings. He will make it right. This promise of a son, we can trace back further than David, though. We can keep looking back in, in the Bible, and we see, that, that we see this thread of, of a promise of a, of a son to be born. It goes all the way back to, um, to Abraham, doesn't it? The promise there, Abraham, you're going to have a son. I'm going to bless the whole world 
through that son. And we can keep tracing the, the line, the thread back, all the way to Genesis 3, where God promises Eve and Adam there, right in the wake of the fall, sin has just come into the world, and he says, there's going to be a son. There's going to be a child. And he's going to save you from your sins. Uh, he's going to save you from this exile that you've brought on yourselves. Um, he's going to send a son. And so all through the ages, the people of God are hanging on to this promise. Where's the son? And now Isaiah sees a vision of it. Isaiah sees this vision of this son, this, uh, this, this, this thing that's in the future, but he says it's so certain, it's, it's, it's as historical fact. He sees Christmas coming. And he's holding on to that. Now, loved ones, there's a great hope that Isaiah holds out to the northern tribes here as they see exile coming. But there's a far, far greater hope for us. Um, some, something even clearer and fuller. Because for us, it's not as though we are still waiting as they were for that sun to come. Um, the, Isaiah was making a promise, and it was as good as, as historical fact. But for us, it is historical fact, isn't it? The sun has come. Um, the, the, the promise has become history for us. Uh, th- this has happened. Um, Christmas has happened. And it hasn't ended. As a child, I always thought Christmas Day would last forever. Right? I spent the whole month looking forward to Christmas. And so focused on it that I couldn't imagine anything beyond Christmas. Right? You spend the whole, the whole time, you're thinking of, of, the, of the presents and the food and the fun, and then, and then it comes... And it's a 24-hour day like any other. And then you, that sinking feeling in your stomach as a kid going to bed on Christmas night, it's over. No more presents to open. You know, and then a few more days and it's back to school. Or that, but, but for the Christian, in a very real sense, Christmas morning has come and there will never be Christmas night. Right? It, it's not going to end. I don't mean Christmas in the sense of all the, the, the trappings, the stuff, the, the nostalgia and the, and, the, and the sentimentality and the, you know, all, all, all those things. I mean the reality that's underneath it. The sun's been born. Eternal life has dawned. The sun has, has risen, right? The, sun, the sunrise. That's how uh, Zechariah looks as he's prophesying about this Christ to come uh, in, in Luke chapter 1. He says the sunrise is, is beginning and that sun is not going to set. Right? Christmas has come and it's never going to end for the Christian because Christ has come. The King has come. And it's not as though He's gone away and left His kingdom to fade and end. And sometimes we have that sense that Jesus came and then he left. And the kingdom is just sort of in a holding pattern. Or even worse, it's, it's fading. And one day it's just, you know, we're just, we're just kind of waiting around. And then one day the kingdom will come again. But, but no, Christ has started his kingdom. The sun has risen. All right? And, and it's not going to set. Brothers and sisters, as a Christian, we need, we need to hang on to this. We're not living in a hopeless world. You're not living in a hopeless world. Situation. You are not living under the shadow of death as a Christian. You're not living under slavery to sin, slavery to Satan. The Son has been born. Christ has come. The King is here. The night is over. Day is breaking. It's Christmas morning forever. And yes, there's going to continue to be suffering and, and, and humility and discipline and, uh, and all those things. We're going to continue to struggle with sin. But we're not living 
in the fading light of broken promises. We're living in the dawn of the coming of the King. The King is born. That's the first thing we see. The second is this, the King's name. He gets a fourfold name. It's a wonderful name, um, this fourfold name of Christ our King. Let's consider it together. Verse 6b. Uh, the, first, the first title we get for Christ is Wonderful, Wonderful Counselor. Here is the one who has uh, supernatural wisdom. The, the ideal king in the ancient Near East was someone who had, had exceptional wisdom. The one who could uh, see a situation, see to, the, see to the, the root of the situation, kind of see through the problem, and know exactly what to do, when to do it, how to do it. You know, the ability to, to understand and perceive exactly what's going on and, and, then, and then make the right decision, the best decision to take the best action. That is, that's what a king needs. And in the ancient Near East, that, that's what they prized about. That's what made a good king. We see this so much in Solomon, King Solomon, wisest man of the Old Testament, right? And he writes out for us some of that wisdom in the book of Proverbs. Um, and uh, it, it makes sense. Nothing is more essential to a king than to, to have wisdom. If you're going to lead people, you need, you need wisdom. Uh, you need skill to lead them well. Uh, a king without wisdom, as so many of the Israelites' kings show us, leads you straight into disaster. Um, so a king needs wisdom. And, and Isaiah says, as he's looking forward, prophesying by the, by the Spirit, he says, this king is going to be the one with supernatural wisdom. Far and away, more than any other. Uh, wisdom to a supernatural degree. Divine wisdom. Uh, th- this king is always going to, to make the best plan and, and execute it perfectly. This king is always going to make the best possible decision. This king will never get confused. This king will, will, will never be fooled or be ignorant about something or mistaken about something. He will, he will rule with perfect divine wisdom. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. This is how he rules his church, rules his kingdom, rules you and me here uh, according to his perfect divine wisdom. Is there any other king like that that has that kind of wisdom? Um, how does our wisdom compare? Right? We started out by saying well, often we're trying to put ourselves in the throne, make ourselves the king. Um, are we able to give better counsel to ourselves? Uh, do we have better wisdom than he does? Uh, of course not. Our, our minds are so short-sighted and, and, and limited and, 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 and still so often under sinful habits and we get confused and we get afraid and we act foolishly and we make mistakes, but not our Lord Jesus, not that King. The counsel He gives us is perfect. We have a King. You have a King who cannot get it wrong as He leads you. He cannot make a mistake. Two things this means. One, you can trust him with your life and your family and your future and everything. You can trust him to lead you right. And you can trust him with the church. You can trust him to lead the church right. Second, you can also ask him for wisdom. He's the wonderful counselor. He's the king who has perfect wisdom. And so we can go to him when we are confused and don't know what to do. Lord, give me leadership and guidance from your perfect word by your spirit. Give me this wisdom that I need. James 1.5 commands us to do this. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. So, so go with uncertainty to your king. 
He, he is your king, wonderful counselor. He, he wants you to come to him with your uncertainty and with difficulty and confusion and take it to him and seek wisdom from his word. He's the wonderful counselor. The second title for our, our Lord Jesus, our king here, is Mighty God. It's a stunning title, isn't it? Uh, Mighty God. A, a king who is just a man could never be called Mighty God. This, this king is clearly a man, right? Verse 6a says, a child is born, a son is born, and now this son, this baby that was born is mighty God. It's probably one of the clearest texts in the Old Testament that the Messiah to come is going to be God and man, two distinct natures and one person forever, the perfect mediator of his people. He is mighty God. He is omnipotent. He will be all-powerful. The word mighty here uh, that's, uh, in the Hebrew is a word that's used of, of warriors and, and heroes. Uh, we, could, we could sort of translate the text as saying, this king will be called warrior God. Uh, he, will, he will be the great warrior. He'll, he'll be the one who rides out to battle, defeats the enemy single-handedly. Uh, we see this all over the Old Testament. God is, God is the one who has is, is said, the, the battle belongs to the Lord. He goes out and he crushes Pharaoh. He crushes the Egyptians. He brings the plagues on them and rescues his people. He's the one who destroys the walls of Jericho, the warrior God. He's, he's the one who, who uh, rains down rocks from, heavens on, uh, from the heavens on, on Joshua's enemies as the people come into the promised land. Uh, he, he's, the, he's the one who, who puts the Assyrian army to flight uh, overnight. Um, he's the warrior God for his people. Psalm 24 describes this. It says, Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. So the Old Testament view of God is he is our warrior king who defends us and saves us from all our enemies. And nowhere do we see this mighty God more clearly than in our Lord Jesus Christ the child born in the manger who is the warrior God. Yes, he is Jesus, meek and mild, gentle and lowly in heart. No one is as tender and compassionate and gentle and patient with sinners as our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, But don't let that make you think that, that he is merely nice. He is the warrior God, too. Uh, the one who is the lion of the tribe of Judah, even as he's also the lamb who was slain. And he rides out in victory, and he crushes Satan, and he destroys the power of sin, and, and, and he, 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 he rises from the dead, and he destroys the power of death, and sits on the throne of heaven till all his enemies are laid under his feet, turned into a footstool for him. That's also who he is. There's no other king like that. That kind of power and might. We already we, we talked about this as we started. Again, we, we try to be our own kings. Try to pretend we are, we are mighty uh, to save ourselves, but we are not. We can't free ourselves from sin. We can't free ourselves from, 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 from the curse of death or the power of Satan. But Christ the King, He can. He can. Jesus, the third title for our King is Everlasting Father. Everlasting Father. Um, fathers, usually we think, of the, we think of the first person of the Trinity. God the Father. 
Um, but uh, here what we're not seeing is a confusion between the persons of the Trinity as Jesus receives this name Father. It's, uh, it, it's, it's giving us a picture, a metaphor of how we understand what kind of king he is. What, what's, this, what's this king going to be like? Well, he's going to be like a father to his people. What does a father do? What, what does a good father do? Um, takes full responsibility, right, for the care of his children. That, that's probably the basic thing a father is to do. He's the one who takes full primary responsibility for those in his, those in his care. He makes sure his kids have a safe home to live in, makes sure that his kids uh, have food to eat, clothes to wear, make sure they feel loved, make sure that, uh, that, that they, that they uh, have his leadership and his discipline and his, and his training. And, and that's what our Lord Jesus, our King, does for us. He comes to us with fatherly love and compassion and care and also with that leadership and that, that provision and that protection. Um, he gives us all, all these things, right? As he, as he secures our salvation for us, provides a heavenly home for us where nothing can break in or, or, or threaten any, anything. He, he loves us with a love that nothing can separate us from. Our everlasting Father. And, and He is this forever. We don't grow up and, and move out from this Father. Uh, we, we don't leave his care. He never stops providing and protecting, leading, guarding, guiding us, his children. If you come to King Jesus and you bow to him and you trust him, then he will be like a father for you who provides for you, protects you, and guards you, and guides you. Not, not giving you a sin-free, easy, comfortable life here and now, but he will take full responsibility for you, for your soul, and, 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 and He will bring you safely home to heaven. He'll never let you go. And there's no other king who can do that. We can't do that for ourselves. No other earthly king can do that for us. Only our Lord Jesus Christ. The fourth title for Christ, our King, is Prince of Peace. He, he, he brings peace through His own blood. Lays down his life so that we can have peace with God. He is the mediator between God and man. He, he, he makes peace between us and the Lord. He makes peace between man and man. He makes peace between Jew and Gentile. He, he makes us able to have peace with each other. He is the king who, who pours out peace, who gives us peace in our hearts, who, who, who gives peace to our, our troubled souls and uh, gives us uh, 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 even, even the promise of perfect peace to come. This is a picture, right? So we've seen he's the warrior God and now he's the one who has defeated the enemies and peace is here. And that's who he is for us. And, and it's that peace that really comes into greater view as we move on into the third a third heading this morning, the king's reign. In verse 7, the king's reign. <clears throat> what, we've seen who this king is, what his titles are, what kind of king he is for us. Verse 7 tells us what his kingdom is like. What, what would it be like? What is it like to live under this king? Verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Three things I'd like to draw out from, from that verse for us as we consider his kingdom together. Uh, number one, is his kingdom will be one of ever-increasing peace. 
ever-increasing peace. As we, we talked about this briefly on, on Friday night in our lessons and carol service. Peace in the Bible doesn't just mean a ceasefire, that, that the bombs have stopped falling and the guns have stopped firing. It means that there's no danger of any of that. The rubble of war has been cleared away. The wreckage of sin is gone. And in its place is life and prosperity and blessing. Um, we get this wonderful language in the Old Testament of every man sitting under his own vine and under his own fig tree. Right? Every single person in this, in among the people of God it has their own place, and they have plenty. Uh, we get this language also of the lamb and the lion lying down together. There, there, there's, no, there's, no, uh, there's no conflict of any kind. This, this, this peace that he brings is wholeness and fullness. Everything made right. Healthy, every need met. But there's more to it. We can, we, if we think of it and leave it there, we're missing a big piece of it because this piece is not just some, some utopia that he gives, um, but it's, it's wholeness in the presence of God. Right? That, that's what's at the heart of it. Being made, uh, made, made right with God. Being brought into the presence of God and enjoying all these things as gifts from God to us. This is the essence of peace. This is what Christ has come to give. This is what his kingdom will mean. And uh, this, this kingdom will grow. It will increase. It won't stop. It will, he'll keep on reigning and ruling over his, uh, over his people until this kingdom is brought to its uh, glorious consummation. This means, brothers and sisters, that uh, he'll be at work as our king in our hearts bringing peace into our hearts more and more uh, as, we, as we sit under His gracious rule, as we submit ourselves to Him and bow to Him, He'll continue to, to, to work a subjective experience of peace into us based on that great objective peace He has wrought. What a treasure in our chronically anxious age. Our age is so stressed out and anxious. And it's all over the place. But there's peace in Christ, your King. And there's the promise that, that His reign is going to continue and uh, one day we'll be brought into the kingdom of peace where no anxieties can touch you or dangers threaten you. No poverty or no sickness, no disease. Just peace, wholeness in the presence of God. What other king could keep a promise like that? As we think about the, the, the context of, of Jesus' birth, right? What's going on in history? The Pax Romana, or the peace of Rome. 200 years of peace. That's decent looking at world history. That looks pretty good. Uh, uh, but, but what does Jesus bring? Something so much better. He's the Prince of Peace who brings this kingdom of peace that will increase forever and, and, and rule forever. Peace is found in him. The second thing here uh, we see as, as verse 7 describes this kingdom, it's a kingdom of ever-increasing peace. It's also a kingdom filled with justice and righteousness. This king is going to rule over all things in his kingdom, and he's going to make sure that, 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 uh, that every decision is right, that, uh, that, that no sin comes in, no injustice comes in, uh, and, uh, and um, he, he's going to cause that righteousness to grow in our own hearts. And then one day he's going to come and he's going to establish his kingdom in the new heavens and new earth and it will, there will be no injustice or sin or selfishness there at all. What a, what a joy that will be when, when we're there gathered in that kingdom. 
and there is no more selfishness or bitterness or anxiety or, 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 uh, or, or jealousy in our, in our hearts. We won't lash out against one another or, or, or gossip against one another, uh, but we, we will be free from all unrighteousness forever. Now we look around and we see so much injustice and unrighteousness all around us. See, on a small scale, happening in our interpersonal relationships, in our marriages, in our families, in our homes, in our church. Unrighteousness. Unfair treatment. But one day it'll go. And we look around and we see it on a large scale. Right? The atrocities all over the place in our world, in our culture. But one day it'll all end. As he drives out sin forever in the kingdom of heaven. The third thing about this kingdom that uh, we see here is that it will last forever. Um, No enemy from without will bring it down. No corruption from within will bring it down. Uh, The gates of hell will not prevail against it. This kingdom will last forever. It's a glorious promise. Um, What do we... As, as we think about what Christ has, the, the promise of this kingdom, and uh, all, all that's there, and it's just, it, it's, uh, it's such a glorious picture of, of what he's going to bring for us. How do, how do we respond? We're, we said as we started, we're living in the sunrise of this kingdom, right? Christ came, he's, he's establishing this kingdom in the hearts of his people. He's building this kingdom in, in his church. Uh, but how do we go on, right? Because we, we still see so much opposition to him and, and we see sin in ourselves. Two things, brothers and sisters, as we think about how to respond to this king and his kingdom. Number one, worship. Bow down and worship this king. Rejoice in, in all that he is. Uh, submit yourself to him. Bow down to him and say, you are the captain of my faith. You are the captain of my soul. Um, uh, this, this, this kingdom that he brings is not good news to you unless you do that. Right? Otherwise, it's, uh, you, you'll be crushed as his enemy unless you bow down and worship him and ask him to rule your heart. So worship. Worship him. Second thing is wait. Wait for him. This, this king is coming again. There's a wonderful Christmas poem by T.S. Eliot and he has a line in there. He says, The first coming reminds us of the second coming. It's the promise of that second coming, isn't it? Um, this king is going to come again. The sunrise is going to reach high noon and the new heavens and new earth when all this will be brought to its consummation and glory. So worship and wait. Look forward to his coming again. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we rejoice that you are such a glorious king. Lord, we would surrender to you, bow before you. Lord, conquer our hearts and reign supreme. Lord, help us to worship and wait for you. We pray these things in your precious name. Amen.